Hey there, and welcome to You Talk. We connect with extraordinary people across Canada and ask them about their stories, passions, and experiences. I'm your host, Ryan Funk. What does it take to become a doctor? Of course, there's the years of diligent study, but also a drive to understand what ails people and a passion to heal the wounded. Dr. Jared Bullard exemplifies those traits. Not only is he a pediatric infectious disease expert, but he is driven to inspire the doctors of tomorrow. So my name is uh, Jared Bullard. I'm one of the physicians who works here in Winnipeg. Um, I am a pediatric infectious disease doctor and section head of that particular program. And I'm also a medical microbiologist. And so I'm associate medical director at CADAM Provincial Lab. Uh, the public health lab for Manitoba. So a lot of the COVID testing has been done here. What first attracted you to working in medicine? If you were to ask my, my parents, uh, I was interested in medicine from a pretty early age, like about when I was 11. Um, I don't know anything in particular that, that did it. Uh, I certainly think of my grandma was sick around the time. And I remember thinking I wanted to help her and then revisited that back in high school as well. Um, and it was it was neat there too because at that point I was thinking along the lines of psychiatry. Uh, I have no idea what particularly or why I would consider that. Um, but then it was once I was in undergraduate Bachelor of Science, it's where I started to do a lot more work in in microbiology and parasitology, uh, and I really thought that was was the way to go. Um, just because I found it super intriguing, and I thought that maybe that's what I wanted to end up doing. Uh, but then, of course, as you, you progress and you get into medical school, um, you start seeing certain aspects of medicine that appeal to you. And again, I found that anything related to infectious diseases and, and microbiology was, in fact, really appealing. Um, what helped, too, is that I actually had a year off between uh, medical school and finishing my undergraduate degree. And it was at that point that I started doing some research uh, with the HIV researchers here at the University of Manitoba. And I, I found, again, that just reinforced. So there was all this reinforcement basically throughout undergrad, uh, the research, and then medical school, which ultimately led me to do the, the various disciplines that I currently do. I have a friend who's currently uh, studying the sciences in microbiology, and what he tells me, it's uh, pretty in <laughs> intensive stuff sometimes. It can be. It can be very complicated. And it's interesting now that we're in COVID times that people are using phrases that you would never have expected them to do. And there's a lot of interest just in, in what we do and how we think. And it's, uh, it's really cool. When you're going through school and you're going through these different elements, were you like surprised when you got attracted into microbiology? And what was that like class structure like? What, were, you, were there times where you feel like you were just hitting your head <laughs> against the wall? <laughs> no, I'd say that, you know what, going through undergrad, I, I always knew that I liked microbiology and, and microbiology is broken up into all sorts of different uh, components. So bacteriology is something that I did a fair amount in my undergraduate days and parasitology. I love the course so much that I actually became the lab demonstrator at the University of Winnipeg uh, for both parasitology and bacteriology. I, I'd say the biggest surprise to me, if anything, was that when I was doing medical school, I knew I wanted to do infectious disease and, and potentially microbiology as well. Um, but I always had the impression I would end up being in internal medicine, which deals with adults and, and older patients. Um, and if you would have asked me my first year if I'd end up going into pediatrics, there's no way that would have happened. Um, but all it took was a rotation in internal medicine as a, as a clerk to make me go, oh, I don't know if this is the right fit. Uh, but when I did pediatrics, I, I saw the, the lights, I think is what some people said. And, and so 
that I applied to that program in addition to internal medicine. And in the end, it worked out quite well. I'm very, very happy doing pediatric infectious diseases. And I think more so than I would have been doing internal medicine, adult infectious diseases. What was it about just uh, that kind of... <laughs> you know, the biggest thing, and I, I tell trainees who, who about this experience was that you're, you're there for about seven weeks doing a rotation and you get to know these people and they're fantastic and you really enjoy your time with them. And, and it's almost like you're polishing them up and you get them to a point where they can go home and you're all excited. Um, and then toward the end of that seven weeks, there was a whole bunch of them coming back and you're just like, what, what's going on here? And then on top of that, I found that even like a month or two after I finished the rotation, a lot of them were showing up in the obituaries. And I, I found that uh, not hard, but it was just, you know, it was a lot of work to get people uh, to, to come to a plan to make them feel better and get them home. And ultimately, I, I don't, I, I almost felt it was futile. And not to say that it was, that was just my perception of it, because I know that there's lots of, of doctors who do internal medicine, including my wife, uh, who, who love that sort of thing and trying to optimize kind of more of end-of-life care. Uh, when I did pediatrics, it was, it was the opposite. It was as complicated as internal medicine, uh, but once they got home, they stayed home. They didn't come back, and it was really gratifying to see that. And I think that the culture in pediatrics is a bit more of a better fit for me as well. Uh, they're a little bit more laid back in some ways um, and a bit more fun. <laughs> Not that, again, other doctors aren't fun, but pediatricians are a special group when it comes down to it. Yeah, you mentioned that your wife was also a, a doctor. What What is the home life like with uh, two doctors kind of thing? Do you like share stories? You're like, oh, I was trying to figure this thing out. So you're right. Dinner and casual conversation often goes back to, to medicine and talking about it and our children. I get to hear it all the time too, and they're used to it. And they've actually picked up uh, an interesting skill and knowledge set at this point. They can talk about it too. But you know what? It, it's great that you have someone that you can share that with. And I think that's um, one of the things that's made being in medicine a little bit easier too, because the both of us are, are both academic physicians and quite specialized. And so it's great to have that. Uh, that camaraderie in addition to everything else you get from this uh, I went to the University of uh, Manitoba's website and then there was a link there to all the different studies and like articles that you've worked on. I think it was something like 41 results were in there. Just what is the experience like working on these articles and papers and which one kind of stands out to you as the one that you're most proud of? If you would have asked me three, four years ago if I was a researcher, I probably would have said not really. Um, a lot of what I focused on in doing research was really answering straightforward questions, which I guess is research, but it was more to do with how do we provide better services in terms of testing and screening, and especially around the sexually transmitted bloodborne infections and HIV. So that, uh, that was kind of what I started. But with COVID, it really came down to uh, being at the right place, right time with a very specific knowledge and skill set to be able to answer certain questions. So when I think of of the research and the papers that have come out, um, the two that I'm particularly proud of would be uh, one that was in the clinical infectious diseases in May of 2020, uh, predicting SARS coronavirus 2 infectivity from patient samples, uh, and why that one in particular. So this was actually one of the, the first research studies in the world that defined exactly how long somebody with COVID was infectious. And that's where we discovered that it was probably in that eight to 10 day range. And why I'm particularly proud of that paper as well is, I mean, the people that I worked with here in, in Manitoba, it was 
uh, not just at Chatham Lab, it was the University of Manitoba people, it was people in public health, it was people over at the National Lab. Um, and we, we basically defined the way to do the particular studies that we did, uh, looking at this particular virus, linking it to clinical and epidemiological data, and then also um, defining the, the cell culture way to do it. And then so when I hear people using the word cycle threshold or CT values, and you can see that it's actually become part of, of common lingo in and around COVID, uh, it's interesting that I had a contribution to that particular research. Um, the other one that comes to mind that I'm particularly proud of is uh, was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal uh, last year in April. Uh, and so that one was following up on the initial study because we wanted to make sure that we included children. And as a pediatrician, we know that uh, kids are not always the same as adults and they have different ways that they interact with the world and the world interacts with them. And we thought that maybe SARS coronavirus 2 was going to be a little bit different. And all we were looking to do was actually just define, well, how long are they infectious? We knew that it was eight days for adults, but we didn't have any children in that initial study. And so we tried to do that and we didn't actually manage to achieve that goal. But what we did demonstrate was that children consistently had less virus uh, when compared to adults and the amount of virus that we could grow, implying that it was live, viable, able to cause infection, was significantly less. Uh, and that was really interesting to us, but it also kind of made sense because at this point we were starting to see that clinically children weren't getting as sick. They really fortunately don't really seem to be impacted by COVID to the same degree as adults. And then on top of it, they weren't spreading it nearly as well because that's very, very different than influenza, RSV, or any number of different viruses that affect children. They spread it very well. In fact, we looked to them to know when we're going to be hit with respiratory virus season. Once we see it in kids, we know that in about two to four weeks, we're gonna see it in the adult population. So I would say that those two in particular were, were highlights. Um, because they were just the impact that they had and, and the the interest in the general population was also just inspiring just to say wow people are actually interested in science yeah when you're talking about like uh, influenza and things like that with uh with young kids uh i think it was i guess three years ago now like out in the um uh, there was a, a school and basically the whole school got sick almost instantly all at once like everyone all the students were out and it's like wow yeah when kids get sick like everyone <laughs> gets sick so i think that's just very interesting how like um COVID-19 just hasn't really uh, been that kind of same development that like influenza or things are. Right. And I think that's, that's really an important message that, uh, that to help uh, public health people and clinicians and the general population appreciate that. I mean, it's not the same in children. Uh, it, uh, if it were, and it can become, I mean, the variants certainly can modify themselves to be more infectious and maybe we'll find that it changes in children over time. But right now, including with Omicron, it, it's still not doing the same things that it's doing in adults. So that's, uh, that's good. That's a good mm -hmm. thing, right? For someone who's spent like so much time, like as a researcher, diligently working through these studies and creating these papers, how frustrating must it be when people just come in with like, oh, I know all of this now because of just a quick Google search. I know all these things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's been the past two years, um, right? And it, it's to be expected. I, I think that you can't have something as, as dominant in society and culture as uh, COVID has been without expecting people to, to want to learn more about it. And that's great. Again, it's, it's just people being curious and wanting to understand. 
Um, but yeah, it is a bit frustrating when they start telling me about, um, you know, in particular, what, what my, re I've actually had people question what my research means. And you're like, well, that's not what it means at all. I mean, I'm pretty comfortable with, with the interpretations you made. But it's, you know, it's a combination of the lay public certainly has, has taken my research and, and, and their understanding of COVID and it's not quite accurate. That also applies to some other, other physicians and practitioners too, right? Like it's being an infectious disease and a medical microbiologist is pretty specialized. And so it, it's, it's hard, especially for, for doctors or in other areas to, to truly appreciate kind of what's needed to properly interpret those. And, and that's fair, you know, I mean, I, again, I, we all have patients and everybody's best interest in mind and I keep that in the back of my head. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been an interesting road and I love when people throw out uh, phrases and terms and you're like, wow, this is exciting. And then, you know, it, it's good. I mean, it, only good can come from having people show more interest in, in our field of interest. The internet is such a great tool, but it's, it's also a dangerous tool sometimes as you know, we've seen through this, this whole pandemic, how just a, an image with some text on it can influence someone's entire opinion. Oh, correct. Yeah, it, it's true. It, um, yeah, the internet is a great place, but and that's, there, there's information overload as well. And how, how do you know what is reliable information versus misinformation versus disinformation? And I think that's part of our, our jobs as physicians and doctors to provide everybody with the best information that we can so they can, they can make the best choices. And that's inherent in being a doctor. We do that all the time. And that's beyond COVID. It can be 100% understandable how some people don't want to sit down and sift through a research paper, they can be incredibly daunting. So, I mean, maybe that's like a shift in society where we need to like make papers or studies more accessible, more um, understandable to people. But I mean, that's, that's a whole other can of worms. <laughs> to, Very much. Yeah. That's <laughs> an entirely separate conversation for sure. <laughs> As a person of color, have you faced any challenges while working within just the, the medical fields or STEM? Because I've had conversations, um, Immigrant and International Women in Science. Uh, they're a group that works to get particularly immigrant women into the fields that they study because, you know, they're having a hard time finding jobs. Or when they do, there's a lot of discrimination in there. You know what? I mean, I'm originally from the Bahamas and I was born there, but moved here when I was fairly young to, to Winnipeg. Um, what I noticed more than anything being, being black or biracial technically, um, is that I, it was very rare to have another black person in my class or program. Like I can literally think in kindergarten through grade nine, uh, there was one other black girl, uh, in high school, in the honors program, there was one other black guy. When I did my bio bachelor of science at the University of Winnipeg, there was one guy in chemistry and me in biochemistry, molecular biology. Uh, and then in medical school, there in a cohort of 300 of us, there were literally two, uh, two black people, me and, and a good friend of mine in the year, in my wife's year, actually. Um, and that was really interesting. It was just that feeling that, you know, there really, there really wasn't the best representation of, of black people in general. And, and certainly, uh, knowing that I was a 15th graduate from the University of Manitoba's medical school uh, in its entire history was, was interesting too, right? Um, in terms of the practice of medicine, it's it's not often that being Black comes up. I would say more than, than anything, it's related or more as a, a person of color uh, is that people ask where I'm from. 
Um, and I don't, I don't take it personally. I really just kind of think it's interesting. And sometimes I will play with them. Uh, and I'll mention like, I'll joke that, oh, it's my accent. And that's what you're picking up on. And of course, I have a, you know, St. Fatale, Winnipeg accent. <laughs> but they go, yeah, yeah, it's your accent. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. But a lot of the time, I'm, I'm just explaining that, yeah, no, I'm, I'm from the Bahamas originally. And it's not just, I would say, white people. Uh, it's more common, I'd say, from, from white parents, grandparents, and patients. But I also get that from a variety of different other people of color. So Indians often think I'm Indian. Filipinos have mistaken me for Filipino. Um, so, you know what, it, it's just, I think it's just trying to, to find common ground more often than not. And it's not in an insulting way that I'm asked usually. It is just kind of curiosity uh, because I think that uh, African patients or black patients are, are genuinely interested to know when I'm from, I tell them I'm from the Bahamas and the West Indies. They think that's, that's great. Um, it, it, the other cool thing that I think happens a lot too is that there aren't a lot of, of black uh, physicians that children would see. And so again, it's that representation aspect that having a black child see a black physician come into the room and you can always see that they get very excited about it. They're like, oh, no. <laughs> and I, I do talk to them all the time and I ask them what they want to do. And, and some of them want to be doctors. And it's something that I, I encourage. I say, you know what, you stay in school and you, you work really hard and I'm going to see you when you're here and you're graduating to be a doctor. I'll be right, right front row for you. And I, I hope that message sticks. I mean, that, that's well, of course, my goal. You, you want that di diversity in, in the medical field. Like maybe it can just help someone feel more comfortable if there's someone who looks like them in, in the uh, in there, or just the diversity of um, op opinions or thoughts on tackling a certain uh, situation. Everyone has different backgrounds and experiences, so like having that just melting pot of more ideas is only beneficial. I think there's many ways to come at any particular problem and having that uh, diversity is really important. I mean, certainly as a, a working in a public health lab, they look at all sorts of issues that we have traditional and tried traditional methods to address and it doesn't work. And then you suddenly engage any number of different community grassroots movements from different cultures and they have these ideas. There's like, well, that, that's great. That's actually really smart. Uh, and then you incorporate it and you start to see some some movement of the needle and it's, it's actually very um, reassuring right it's great to see that diversity and that's something again that's important i mean having that diversity represented in your medical school to to reflect the population that you serve is is key um, and that's one of the goals that i have uh, as a black physician uh, in particular i'm also part of the, the black physicians of canada as a central canada representative and that's one of the many, many things that we're advocating and looking to enhance really to make sure that we have uh, representation at the various universities across the country. Awesome. So yeah, just getting involved. What do you think are some other ways that we can just help uh, make just medicine and the fields of STEM more inclusive and inviting to diversity? I think the key is catching people when they're young, right? It's um, if you can plant that seed in their head that you are good at this and you belong here just like anybody else that would go a long way right and that's why i make a point of pointing or saying that to the patients that i see uh who and it's not just black patients indigenous patients filipino any of them really i will just say you know what like this is this is important and i think that's that's the most important message is just that you belong here that science is for you like if you have an ability to think problems through and you like figuring stuff out, 
you know what? Again, sciences is a great opportunity to make that happen. You seem like an awesome guy. And I really hope that message is ingrained in these kids. And, you know, maybe in the next couple decades, we're, we're starting to see a much more vast group of people working in medicine. I think it'd be so cool to see like doctors of like uh, all backgrounds, just walking around, figuring out solutions, helping patients. And I agree. And I'm right now, even, you know what, I, I can see the change. I've been what in medicine for or just over 20 years now. And I think of what it was like when I first started to what it is now. And you can see that diversity happening. Uh, young people in particular, uh, the millennials, we bash on them all the time, but they they bring a whole different perspective and I, they're very inclusive. And it's, it's really going to be cool to see where we go in the next 20 years. Well, it was great talking with you. Where can people go to find maybe find some of those studies that you've worked on? Boy, <laughs> you know what? Most of the time, uh, it's a simple one, Google Scholar. If you're to, to go and put my name, Jared Bullard, into it, you'll find pretty much every study that I've, I've done. Um, and it's usually accessible um, to, to most people that way. So that's, that would be my suggestion. Um, most of the papers and research that I've done will show up there. And I guess just one final thing, if you were going to tackle another study or research paper, what is that dream project that you'd like to work on? Oh, my. that is a fantastic question. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I'm really looking at and, and I've always been interested in is HIV and STDIs. And in particular here in Manitoba with our, our problems with syphilis, there's, there's a lot of syphilis uh, going on, way more than there should be. And as a result, you're seeing a lot of kids born with syphilis, which is something that really shouldn't happen. And so I think that a lot of my research, and, and stay tuned, you'll see a lot of the, the, the products of those research coming out. And it's looking at it from a very broad base to help clinicians figure out how to diagnose it, help public health know how to properly define it so they can get resourced appropriately. Um, and so all of those things are, are coming and I think that it'd be really great if I could do the same for HIV, which I think is, is coming too. I'll work on that after, you know, COVID's <laughs> in, in the backseat for a little while anyway. If you have any stories you'd like us to share or communities we should highlight, leave a comment on our social media or reach out to us on our website. I'm Ryan Funk. This was You Talk. And have yourself a good one.